Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Charles Spurgeon once said, to live by faith is far happier than to live by feelings. R.C. Sproul said, we are not free to do what is right in our own eyes. We are called to do what is right in his eyes. I don't know if R.C. was expositing the end of Judges, the very last verse in Judges 21 or the very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And R.C. is challenging us that we're not free to do what is right in our own eyes. We are called to do what is right in God's eyes. I think it's safe to say, as we read those two quotes, they probably hit you a little bit, because these are not the prevailing opinions of the world. These are not the prevailing opinions of the day. The world says that we are the source of truth. It tells us to follow our hearts. It says our truth is true for us and your truth is true for you. So when we follow Christ, we are ignoring the wisdom of the world. Thomas Watson said this, a man cannot love health and poison too. So one cannot love God and sin. You see, the world is drawing us into this place where we're deceiving ourselves, that we are the center of the universe, that we can sin and do whatever we want because it's all about us. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible challenges us to pursue the Lord to pursue Jesus, to pursue his glory. And sometimes, as we pursue Christ, it can lead to difficulties, rejection, and even persecution or trials. So what do we do when we're facing trials? Well, the author of Hebrews says we are called to endure in the Lord. So as we finish out this section of Hebrews chapter 10, this end of the chapter and the end of the fourth warning passage, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the results of trials in verses 32 through 35. We're going to see the call to endure in verses 36 through 39. So let's start by looking at the results of trials in 32 through 35. These verses tell us contextually remind us that the people that the audience or that the author is writing to have undergone lots of trials and persecution and tribulation. You remember the context of this section is that the audience is facing more trials and they've been tempted to go back to the old ways, go back to the old covenant, go back to the ways of Judaism after having believed in Jesus. And the author, over and over and over again through Hebrews, is telling us, Jesus is better. But these believers, 
They've been under trials since the beginning. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And so after they came to faith, they endured struggles. They endured suffering. They endured persecution. But the author here is saying that that's okay because Jesus is better and he is worth it. And not only that, but as we face trials together, it grows us as a family of faith. It molds us, it changes us, it shapes us into a more Christ-like image. And the author wants to remind his readers of their love of God and how the Word produces life-changing fruit. He says that, that it produced life-changing fruit in their lives as soon as they came to faith, but that also as they went through trials, it continued to shape and to sharpen them. And so the author reminds them of the results of their previous trials. First, trials deepen fellowship. You look at verses 32 through 33. We're going to have all these up here. Verses 32 through 33. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The audience has endured hardships together. As they pursue the Lord, as they've come to faith, as they trusted in Jesus, they have been ridiculed, they have been persecuted, they have been attacked by the people around them. And that draws them Together, we already mentioned um, that this word sympathy uh, back in Hebrews chapter 4 is, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, This phrase, sometimes being partners, if you look uh, in verse 33, sometimes being partners, publicly exposed to reproach, reproach and affliction, that word partners in that sentence is from the Greek word koinonia. Now, if you've uh, heard Acts 2, 42 through 47 preached, koinonia runs throughout that. And so Acts 2, 42 through 47 is the beginning of the church. And it says this, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, koinonia, the breaking of bread and the prayers, all came upon every uh, soul, and wonders and signs were being done of the apostles. And it goes on to talk about how they were able to share their things because of this fellowship. They prayed together because of this fellowship. They broke bread together in their homes because of this fellowship. They received everything from the Lord because of this fellowship. And they had favor with the people as they praised the Lord because of this fellowship. That word, koinonia, means a deep communion together. It reminds me a lot of what it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 26, it's talking about the communion of the saints, that is, our time together. And and it says in paragraph one, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by their spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another together in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. 
So in talking about the communion of the saints and talking about the, the, the church, the fellowship of believers, the Westminster Divines said that this is important, this, this fellowship, this koinonia, being partners together is significant. And so as we go through trials, our fellowship is deepened. These Christians have risked their standing and their social acceptance in order to care for one another. As certain Christians were picked out or persecuted or put in jail, anybody who went to visit them was now affiliated with them and so could potentially lose any kind of influence that they had. And yet, because they loved Jesus, they were willing to do this. They cared for one another at personal expense, both financial, relational, socioeconomic, and yet they did that because they loved the Lord. And as they did that, they deepened their fellowship. Not only do trials deepen fellowship, but trials also deepen compassion. Look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. By serving one another, their compassion was deepened. This is where that sympatheo word comes in. The Greek word for compassion is sympatheo, which is the same word used back in uh, chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15, which we already read, is talking about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. They loved one another, had compassion on one another, sympathized with one another, just as Jesus had. This word implies active suffering together, not just emotional empathy. It's easy for us to look at pictures on the TV of people who are suffering and go, oh, I hate that that's happening. This is something different. This is something deeper. This is active suffering together because of the compassion that they have for one another that is built in and through Jesus. They had care and concern for each other, seeking to alleviate the suffering of other believers. In this specific example, we see that they're caring for those who are in prison all throughout Scripture we see that this is affirmed in Matthew chapter 25, verse 36. Jesus is pointing to this in the midst of a text about who he was and, and how their care for others will show that they love him. In verse 36, it said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These believers are doing that because of the compassion that they have for each other. They're sacrificing their own advancement to love each other well. Not only do trials deepen fellowship and trials deepen compassion, but trials deepen joy. Look at the second half of verse 34. Excuse me. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. While they were serving one another, their joy is deepened through that service because their focus is on the things of eternity. 
Their focus is on Jesus and the promises that he's given and the hope that they have in him. As Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's where their eyes were fixed. Because of that, they were able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property. People came in and stole and vandalized and took from them. And they joyfully accepted that because they recognized that the reason people were persecuting them and pursuing them was because of the joy they had in Christ. This is not new. Luke chapter 6 in uh, verses 22 and 23 Jesus says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Luke, or Jesus in Luke, says to rejoice when you are persecuted. But it doesn't stop there. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Even Peter gets in on the action in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I don't know about you, but this is not what I hear when I turn on the television. This is not what I hear when I read. Instead, I hear, value your own things. You gather your things. Suffering is to be avoided at all costs. And yet, Scripture tells us that when we go through trials for Christ, when things happen to us because we are pursuing Jesus, we are to rejoice. I think that we would all admit that sounds really hard. It sounds really difficult to be persecuted, to be, to be dumped on, to be taken from, and to be joyful. That's not our natural inclination. Our hearts cling to the things that we have and the identities that we have in this earth. And when someone threatens that, it hurts us. But if our perspective is on Christ, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as verse 34 says, there is nothing here that is as joyous and glorious as what we have promised. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, the things of this world will pass away. 
but eternity with the Lord will be forever. When we go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. Trials deepen our joy because trials show us that we are focused on Christ. Draw us into focusing on Christ. So not only do trials deepen our fellowship, trials deepen our compassion, trials deepen our joy, but trials also deepen a sense of the important. In verses 34 and 35, we've already started touching on this. What is important? Not the possessions of this world, but the better possession, the abiding possession that we have in Christ. And then verse 35 says, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. Dennis Johnson, in speaking on this particular section, says this, They had joyfully acquiesced when their property was seized by others, confident that they had a better abiding possession, just as the patriarchs fixed their spiritual sights on a city without foundations, whose designer and builder was God, a better heavenly country. We'll read about that in chapter 11, verses 10 and 16. The hope of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, chapter 12, verse 28 and a lasting city to come, chapter 13, verse 14. All of those things will sustain Jesus' followers today, just as it strengthened the Old Testament people of faith to endure mocking, flogging, chains, homelessness, destitution, and death. Turn one page over. We're going to look towards the end of chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. This is talking about what we would call the hall of faith. We're going to dive into this starting next week. And it's talking about those who have pursued the Lord all through their lives and throughout Scripture. And in verses 36 through 38, it says this, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were even sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom? The world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and the caves of the earth, those people had their eyes fixed on Jesus because they recognized what was important. As they suffered in trials, they saw that Christ and his everlasting, eternal gifts were what mattered the hope that we have to be with him in eternity, to walk again one day with God in the garden, that's what mattered. They fixed their eyes on Jesus and they lived in such a way that even though the world persecuted them, even though the world beat them, even though the world sawed them in two, the world was not worthy of them because they had faith. Heidelberg, question and answer 28, says, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? The answer we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, when our eyes are fixed on the things that are coming, we can suffer through trials and even 
in the trials, recognize that what's important is eternity. John Calvin said, whenever the feeling of heavenly good things is strong, so whenever we are fixing our eyes on Jesus and yearning for the things to come, there is no taste for the world and its allurements so that no sense of poverty or shame can overwhelm our minds with sorrow. If we then wish to bear anything for Christ with patience and equanimity, let us grow accustomed to frequent meditation on that happiness in comparison with which all the goods of this world are but rubbish. Brothers and sisters, happiness is found in the gospel of grace and the hope that we have in Jesus, not in the things of this world. The things of this world are passing away. Calvin says when we have a taste of the heavenly things and that taste is strong, then the things of this world, all the things that allure us, that try to draw us into this world and focus on ourselves, goes away. Such that when we are faced with poverty, when we're faced with shame, when we're faced with persecution, we are not overwhelmed because we know of our future great hope. And so Calvin challenges us, when we want to bear anything for Christ, we should frequently think about the happiness that we have when we fix our eyes on Jesus, not in the things of this world. When our focus is on the hope that we have in Christ, because Jesus is better, the things of this world lose their luster and we yearn for eternity. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, after talking about all those great heroes of the faith, tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Not them. He only listed them because their eyes were fixed on Jesus. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus and run with perseverance because we know that what is coming is better. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. One day we will walk with God in the garden and all the effects of sin will be reversed. So when we are suffering through trials, we need to remember that trials actually work to deepen us. Trials deepen our fellowship with one another as we go through this together. Trials deepen our compassion for each other. Trials deepen our joy because we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And trials deepen our sense of the important things. We are called to be confident in Jesus and live for the things that endure. Remember, the audience is saying, being with Jesus is hard. We're being persecuted. Let's go back to the old covenant. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, be confident in Jesus. 
Because even in the midst of trials, you can endure. So let's look at the end of this, verses 36 through 39. So we've looked at what is gained through trials, how they deepen our fellowship, joy, compassion, and sense of the importance. Now let's look at what the author is calling us to in terms of endurance. He's calling his audience and us to endure in our faith. And he does this first by imploring us not to give up. Look at verse 36. For you, have no, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, it's interesting because when you compare verse 35 and verse 36, verse 36 basically is a positive restating of verse 35. In verse 35, we say, don't throw away your confidence. It's your great reward. And in verse 36, it says, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, that great reward. It's a positive restating of verse 35. He's reminding them that trusting in God's promises leads to acting in anticipation of those promises. When we trust in the things that God has promised us, we will act in such a way as though we are receiving them. We will pursue the Lord. Our focus is to be fixed ahead on our promised future because only through that can we endure the trials that are coming our way. Again, remember, this is a part of the author's fourth warning. There are people who read this section and they think, oh, see, people can lose their faith. That's not the point. The implication is not, excuse me, about losing salvation, but it's about the loving care by God for his children. Lorraine Botner puts it like this. Warnings and exhortations in Scripture are inducements which produce constant humility, watchfulness, and diligence. In the same way, a parent, in order to get the willing cooperation of a child, may tell it to stay out of the way of an approaching automobile, when all the time the parent has no intention of ever letting the child get into a position where it would be injured. When God plies a soul with fears of falling, it is by no means a proof that God, is his, God in his secret purpose intends to permit him to fail. These fears may be the very means by which God has designed to keep him from falling. Botner is basically saying, when we're standing at the edge of a busy highway, we don't say, all right, don't go in the road because you could get hurt, and then just watch as the kid takes that first step in. We say, don't go in the road because you could get hurt, but we have no intention of allowing them to get anywhere close to that busy intersection. We're going to hold them back as well. We're warning them because we love them and we want them to understand what it is that we're talking about. Another commentator puts it this way, all of this is calculated to produce endurance. Such warnings as we read in this passage should produce a great incentive to hate sin. Remember that times of persecution in particular can be times of grievous temptation. So the author is warning them. That as you are being persecuted, as you are going through these trials, sin is going to be crouching at the door. Temptation is going to be growing. You may have heard the phrase halt. Uh, many counselors use this to help us to realize and recognize times when we are weak. It means hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Uh, most Christian counselors will say those are times when temptation is strong. When we're hungry, when we're angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired, you could add stress to that. 
so that either you have halts or some other combination of those letters. But the idea there is that when we are experiencing negative things, whether it be trials or whether it just be the day-to-day life, that is when temptation is going to be crouching at the door and we have to be aware. We have to endure. We are not to give up. And then the author tells us, not only are we not to give up, but we are not to shrink back. Verses 37 through 39. Do not shrink back. In these verses, the author uses Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4, to make his point. And he begins in verse 37 by trying to keep the church alert and ready for the return of Christ, as opposed to being lazy and unprepared in our faith. Verse 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. We have to be on the lookout. We have to be aware and alert, pursuing the Lord, not being lazy, not saying, well, you know, I can deal with that later, but actively pursuing God. Again, John Calvin said this, just as a general proclaims to his soldiers that the end of the war is not far off, if only they hold on for a little while, so the apostle declares that the Lord will soon come to deliver us from all evil if only our spirits do not give up by becoming weak. In Habakkuk, Habakkuk has cried out to God. He's worried about his nation. He's worried about Israel and the sins that they're struggling under and the way that they've turned from God. And the Lord responds, and he says, there will be judgment on the wicked and a reward for those who live by faith. Look at verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Those who are not of God, the wicked, will shrink back from God. Will shrink back from God's will. But the righteous live by faith, not shrinking back from God and his will. The author closes this fourth warning with an encouragement for believers. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The author has warned them, has reminded them of how trials shape and sharpen them, and has warned them not to give up and not to shrink back. And he ends everything in verse 39 with an encouragement for the believers. Every generation and every time period faces challenges to God's call to faithfulness. Our own culture here in the 21st century is enamored with the idea that each one of us gets to choose our own truths. Each one of us gets to decide what is ours. And when we don't like what somebody's doing, we can just say, no, I don't believe that is true. We get to choose our truth. We get to decide what is enough for God. That's what our culture is telling us. You look at the news. What has this led to? This has led to entire denominations, churches, even what they call Christian conferences that try to call good sin and tried to call sin 
good. They're flipped around. Because instead of going to the Word and pursuing what God calls us to, we're going to our hearts. Calvin said, the heart is a factory of idols. Our culture tells us to listen to ourselves, not the Scriptures. This is an old, outdated book. That, it doesn't relate to us today. But it's interesting because it's not just these easy-to-spot movements of sin that we're being warned against. It's also when Christians stop pursuing God. We become satisfied with a little bit of knowledge and an occasional church attendance. That's not enough. It's not enough just to know facts about God. What does James say? The demons know God and shudder. Most of them are probably better theologians than most of us. Because they know the truth. They know what God has done. It's not enough just to know God, and it's not enough just to come every now and then and, and participate occasionally. We've seen that already throughout this challenge, throughout this, this encouragement we saw in 22 through 25, that idea of faith, hope, and love. Draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith. Hold fast to your confession. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Do not neglect to worship and meet together. We can't be satisfied with the little bit that the world wants us to be satisfied with. We have to dive deep into the Lord. A.W. Tozer said, A man can die of starvation knowing all about bread. And a man can remain spiritually dead while knowing all the historic facts about Christianity. Brothers and sisters, we may not be suffering under the same persecution that drew this early church community together, but we are called to the same faithfulness. We are called to God, His Word, prayer, the church, and each other. If and when we do encounter trials, we can rejoice. What does 1 Peter 1, 6-9 say? In this you rejoice that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that, the, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we encounter trials, the Lord tells us to rejoice. We rejoice because trials deepen fellowship. We rejoice because trials deepen compassion. We rejoice because trials deepen our joy. We rejoice because trials deepen our sense of the important. And whenever we counter encounter trials, or even when we don't, we are called to not give up and to not shrink back. Puritan Obadiah Sedgwick said, The principal object of God's eye is the inward and secret frame of the soul. Labor, therefore, to be cleansed of secret sins. 
being a Christian means we have a promised hope. We've seen God sustaining grace in the past, and that's what we're getting ready to dive into in chapter 11 and how God has gloriously worked through his people. We are called to faithfulness in the present, and we know that we have a promised hope with God in the future. What does Paul say in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By fixing our eyes on Jesus, by trusting in him, we have a promised hope for something far greater than anything this earth can provide. We'll walk again one day with God in the garden, and the effects of sin will be reversed. And so we're called. We're called to look at trials and endure them, to not give up and to not shrink back. Let's pray. Father, so often we get caught up in the moment and we don't think about the ways that you have blessed us and called us and provided for us. How this morning, this very morning, you got us out of bed. You woke us up. You brought us together to worship you. Instead, we look at trials and we think, we don't want this. We don't want hardship. And Father, while we dare not pray for trials, we do pray that when we face them, you will remind us that they shape us. And that you would help us to remember how to endure by not giving up and not giving in. Father, be with us as we go from here. Help us to love you deeply, to not shrink back from your word and from your calling in our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.